0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ed Lyon. He is the founder and chief tax strategist at Tax Coach Software, which is owned by Financial Gravity. And The website to reach him is financialgravity.com. Welcome to the show, Ed. I'm excited to be here. Let's just get a little bit of your background in in taxes and kind of how you have come to be who you are at Financial Gravity.
2: Well, the big difference with what we do at Tax Coach and Financial Gravity is we don't just record history. Most accountants do a perfectly good job putting the right numbers in the right boxes on the right forms and getting them filed by the right deadline. But then they call it a day. They do a great job of telling you how much you owe. And that's important. But they don't
1: tell you how to pay less. And so what has been your – act? you got a CPA or what was your background uh, to uh, become my, tax as a tax expert? Actually,
2: as a tax attorney, I have a law degree, which is I think why I'm a little more proactive than most of the people in the tax business. And worked as an editor at the National Underwriter Company – Worked as in house at Ohio National Life Insurance in the in the pension marketing department, uh, but then opened my own tax practice and realized that what clients really wanted wasn't just to find out how much they owed; they wanted ways to pay less. So I created a tax planning product called Instant Tax Relief, which eventually morphed into the Coach software. Uh, we currently have several hundred accountants across the country using TaxCoach to produce proactive tax plans for their clients uh, that, again, tell them how to pay less, not just how much they're going to pay. And what can consumers find if
1: they go to financialgravity.com?
2: Well, they'll find an opportunity to work with Financial Gravity to start with a tax blueprint, which gives them in plain English the things they can do with their particular circumstances to pay less tax. We'll talk later in the hour about the role that tax planning plays in financial services and and financial planning in general. There's there's a proper role and some people give it an improper role, but uh, Financial Gravity works with accountants and financial advisors to help them bring proactive planning to their clients. And for those who don't have a proactive account or financial advisor,
1: financial gravity does that work for them. Very good. So let's take a, take a broad look at the tax system right now. Some people think they're overtaxed. The IRS says that there are hundreds of billions of dollars uh, kind of under the table and the, the secret economy that's not being collected. Are we doing a pretty good job or not such a good job in collecting taxes in this country?
2: Oh, we're doing a terrible job. And I think most people understand that at an intuitive level, and I think that's part of the reason people resent the system. Yeah, the IRS talks about the tax gap. I think their latest figure is somewhere around 300 or $400 billion that doesn't get collected because people don't report that income. But there's a tax gap in the other direction, too. There are millions of clients, millions of taxpayers across America who are paying far more than they legally have to simply because they don't know how to take full advantage of the law. I would bet, based on my experience, that that reverse tax gap of people paying more than they're legally required to is actually greater than the gap of people who don't pay their fair share. But in the end, no, the the tax system, uh, as long ago as President Jimmy Carter, who who called it a disgrace to the human race, the the tax system has been pretty much a disaster, and the situation is only getting worse.
1: So everybody says the solution is a flat tax, a simplified tax, uh, a postcard tax, something that's simple with taking away all the loopholes, deductions, and credits, and that's not exactly, but kind of the direction that this new tax bill is going, would that be the solution to have a a flat or very, very simple tax?
2: That could be a solution. Of course, you and I would probably both like a pony for Christmas too, right? The problem with the flat tax is Congress uses the tax code to do a lot more than just raise revenue. Congress uses the tax code to encourage us to do things that they think are in our best interests, like buying a home with a mortgage or educating our children through college student loans. Congress also uses the tax code to reward favored contributors. So it's it strains credibility to believe that Congress would give up the power to do that by moving to a truly flat tax. And here's something else I think is important to mention. It might be possible to create a postcard tax form for the great majority of Americans who go to work in the morning at an employer, bring home a W-2, and at the end of the year might have a 1098 for mortgage interest or something like that. But when it comes to business owners who really are the engine of growth in America, you're still going to need a tax form to figure out how much taxable income is due. And for those people who say that the postcard-sized tax form would eliminate the IRS, well, you're still going to need somebody to collect taxes from people who don't pay the flat tax. You're still going to need criminal enforcement to go after the tax cheats who cheat the flat tax system.
1: So we've we've got a bill that's now passed uh, the House. It's passed the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, The week after Thanksgiving, it's going to be going to the full Senate. Um, So... Let's get into some of the details of it, but first of all, kind of an overall uh, view, if roughly what is proposed passed the House, passed the Senate, not exactly, but if roughly that is passed, is that an improvement or not over the existing system?
2: Well, in terms of an improvement, it depends on your particular philosophy. Do you think that the wealthy should be paying more taxes than the middle class? If that's the case then this tax bill is not likely to be an improvement because despite what some on Capitol Hill say, it really does dramatically reduce taxes on wealthy Americans with very little relative benefit to the middle class. Again, it depends on your perspective. The real focus in this tax bill isn't on individuals. The real focus is on lowering corporate taxes. And Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill alike will tell you that we need lower corporate tax rates to be more competitive in the world. There's there's not a whole lot of dispute on that. The dispute is, how do you pay for it? The the, Republican, this particular tax bill lowers the corporate tax rate, and then it looks at a slew of individual deductions, credits, loopholes, and strategies, and eliminates them to pay for the lower corporate taxes. So probably the most famous one right now is the adoption credit. So the adoption credit gets eliminated. Parents who want to adopt children who desperately want to have a family and who are willing to spend thousands and thousands of dollars won't get to deduct that so that corporations pay lower rates. Now, the proponents of the tax bill will say the lower corporate rates grow the entire economy. And the rising tide lifts all boats, but you've got those adoptive parents out in the cold. It's a, It also makes the tax system more complicated. This tax bill is not a step in the direction of tax simplification. In fact, it really makes things more complicated. Now, for a guy like me who's in the tax industry, I love it. I get paid for complexity. But for for the average listener of this program, probably not a good thing.
1: I mean, what they're saying is by increasing the standard deduction from roughly 12000 to 24000 that 90% of people will do the standard deduction, not have to itemize, so it'll be much simpler for them. What's wrong with that?
2: Uh, oh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And currently, about two-thirds of all taxpayers take the standard deduction anyway. The downside is it would double the standard deduction, but it would also eliminate the personal exemption. So for a married couple, you get 12000 more in standard deduction, but you lose $8,000 in personal exemption. It's only a $4,000 net change. For a family with four children taking the standard deduction, now you get an additional 12000 in standard deduction, but you lose 16000 in personal exemption. So, so you'd simply end up behind, from
1: that, you're saying you'd end yeah. up behind, actually, in a case like that.
2: The, uh, the rates are scheduled to go down. So they would not be paying the tax. They'd be paying the tax on a higher amount at a smaller rate. But there really, there really are a lot of different moving parts, and there's no single part, there's no single aspect of the proposal like doubling the standard deduction, which, is, you know, which makes it either good or bad for the typical middle-class investor. You really have to look at it in its totality.
1: So let's, let's turn the business side first. After the break, we'll come back to the individual side. So do you think that it is beneficial for the country to rate, to lower the corporate rate from 35 to 20, and this will increase economic growth and wages and, as you put it, you know, the, rise, the, the tide will rise to lift all boats? Does, in fact, it work that way?
2: Uh, from, there seems to be a pretty broad consensus on Capitol Hill that that's the case, Democrats and Republicans, and I, I agree with it we have a higher marginal corporate tax rate than just about anybody else in the world at 35%. Now, most companies don't actually pay that 35%. In fact, very few companies pay that 35%. But they spend a lot of time gaming the tax system when they could be creating opportunities and bringing new products to market and creating jobs.
1: I think that's a pretty fair trade-off. So if you have a lower rate, a 20% rate, does that mean there'd be less incentive to game the system uh, and, and be more productive instead of doing all these shelters and so on?
2: Yes, less incentive to game the system. And if we do get to a 20% lower rate, we'll be able to get rid of some of the shelters. we got to pay for it somehow. And the way we pay for it is by broadening the base and lowering the rate and letting everybody get to work.
1: So one of the new business deductions would be able to expense... Uh, capital expenditures right away instead of depreciating it over time, would that have a very positive impact on the economy, you think?
2: That should have a tremendous effect on the economy. If I'm a business owner and I buy a piece of equipment for $100,000 cash, I have to deduct it over maybe five, seven, maybe 15 years. That's not fair to me. I'm putting the money to work now. I'm putting the money to work in the economy. If I spend the money this year, I should be able to deduct it this year.
1: So that'll be helpful. What are some of the big, on the business side, deductions and loopholes that would be eliminated in return for that lowering from 35 to 20 on the rate?
2: The big one is interest on business purchases. Right now, when a company finances something, because debt is treated more favorably than equity. When you borrow money to buy something, you get a better tax treatment than if you pay for it with cash. That means that companies are financing equipment sometimes so that they can match their deduction with their cash flow, and so that they can get uh, more of a more of a current deduction as they're operating that equipment.
1: Do so you think that's a good thing to have? Not, not have equity and debt in effect be equal. And not encourage debt. You think that's a a positive thing for businesses?
2: I think it's a positive thing to let businesses make the decision for themselves, which makes most sense. Some businesses will go one way, some businesses will go the other way, but the tax code
1: won't be distorting that decision. So that's a big change. So this this could be bad for banks, where they wouldn't have as much incentive to to have loans outstanding. Is that right? it could be bad for banks. And so banks naturally are one of the interest
2: groups that are fighting that particular aspect of the bill. But you're asking very smart questions and we really are going to the issue of Uh, we'll get this in quick before the break. What I think is the biggest mistake that a lot of people make is they do things for tax reasons first. The biggest mistake is doing things for tax reasons first. What you really ought to be doing is making the right financial decision and then finding the most tax-efficient way to do it. The questions you're asking go directly to the heart of that debate.
1: Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ed Lyon. Uh, He is the founder and chief tax strategist at Tax Coach Software, which is owned by Financial Gravity. You can find out more at his website, financialgravity.com. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ed Lyon. He's the founder and chief tax strategist at Tax Coach Software, uh, which is owned by Financial Gravity. You can find out more at his website, financialgravity.com. Welcome back to the show, Ed.
2: This is fun. This and is a big question and answer.
1: We want to talk a little bit more on the business side. Now, one of the big uh, part of this new law is the so-called pass through where people have a subchapter S or an LLC, now that rate would go down to 25% instead of regular income tax rates. Is that a smart thing to do, or is it an an enormous loophole that people will be able to... Everybody becomes a subchapter S or LLC, even though they're an employee, to to, uh, get the lower rate?
2: It would lead to the greatest explosion of gaming the tax system since the tax shelters of the 1980s. So here's the issue. Every business fills out a tax return. Some businesses, they're called C-corporations, pay tax at the corporate level on that income. Other businesses, which are taxed as S-corporations or partnerships, simply take that income and pass it through to the owners, and they pay at their personal tax rate, which can be as high as 39.6%. Now, we're talking about lowering the corporate tax rate from 35% down to wherever it ends up being, 20%, 25%, wherever it ends up settling. And that's a great boon for C-corporations, and the theory is, and, and a lot of people, including me, agree that it will help stimulate the economy. The problem is... That's not fair to owners of pass-through businesses, the S-corporations and partnerships, if they end up paying tax on their share of the profit at 39.6%. Everybody's going to want to be a pass-through business. And people who have jobs, regular jobs with regular employers who get a W-2, they're going to be paying tax at the 25 or the 33 or the 39.6, whatever the rate is. They're going to look at people who own businesses and they're going to say, wait a minute. Why am I a sucker paying 39.6% when my next-door neighbor who makes the same amount of money but just does it as a business earns you know, or pays, pays 25%? So it would lead to an explosion of people figuring out ways to recategorize themselves as business owners rather than individual um, you know, wage slaves like, like the rest of us.
1: Now supposedly so, the congressional writers understand this and have written in rules so that it could not be abused, so that, as you say, regular employees could not all of a sudden become <laughs> sub S. Would those be effective, those rules that they're talking about?
2: Oh, I'm laughing out loud because you say the congressional writers are writing in rules to make sure that it can't be abused. That's, I, I mean, why, why do you think accountants and attorneys go to school? They go to school so that they can read those rules and say, okay, I understand what the rule is trying to say, and then they find a workaround to those rules. And there are some pretty elaborate rules. Some corporate pass-through income for personal services, for example, for accountants and attorneys and engineers and consultants would be taxed at the highest rate. Other pass-through income from some business owners would get a blended rate whereby 30%. So
1: so you're saying that the rules they're writing are not going to work, that people will find a way around them. And tons I'm of people s- will become sub S corporations, and yeah, and- I'm
2: skeptical that those rules are going to work. We're probably going to find that uh, uh, the rules are being written fairly quickly. Uh, what is what's the old saying? Uh, Sin in haste, repent in leisure. Yeah, <laughs> the rules are being written fairly quickly to get the bill passed before the end of this year. And that's going to be a Christmas present to attorneys. They're going to sit down and they're going to read those rules and they're going to go to conferences and they're going to meet with each other and they're going to figure out how to rewrite those rules or, or not rewrite those rules, but, but get around those rules.
1: Okay. All right. So we've kind of done the basic things on the, the tack, the business side. Now let's go to the individual side. So they're talking about uh, the house has got, I guess it's four brackets. The Senate has seven brackets, but all of them move rates down and expand the the income that is being covered. So wouldn't that lead to a tax cut for most people, bigger for wealthier people, smaller for middle and lower income people, but still everybody would get somewhat of a tax cut because of that bracket change.
2: Everybody would get somewhat of a tax cut because of the bracket change, but it would be minimal for people with lower income, simply because there's lower income to be taxed. So if I make a million dollars a year and my bracket gets cut by 2%, that saves me $20,000. If you make $60,000 a year and your bracket gets cut by 2%, you're gonna save $100 a month. That's not a whole lot, considering how much I'm going to save. Actually yeah, two percent. Actually two percent of sixty thousand. I'm doing the math in my head. I went to law school because there's no math. Sixty thousand, six thousand, six. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. that's not going to go very far. And if I'm losing some of these other deductions that the bill gets rid of, for example, the adoption credit that we talked about. Mm-hmm. We lose the if I'm a teacher and I lose the the three hundred and fifty dollar deduction for educator expenses. If I'm paying student loans and I lose the deduction for student loan interest, it can be very easy for losing those deductions to more than add up to what I'm saving on the on the brackets.
1: Now, people say, particularly in the real estate area, that uh, lowering the deduction for mortgage interest from a million to five hundred thousand. And uh, in the Senate side, wiping away property tax deductions altogether and the House side limiting them to 10000 and having state and local income taxes not be deductible would really hurt the real estate market, particularly in high income, high property tax states. Is that correct or are people misperceiving I, I that.
2: Think, I think it's absolutely correct to say. And. Congress destroyed the real estate economy once before with the 1986 Tax Act when they lengthened depreciation periods from 15 years to 27 and a half for residential property and 39 for commercial property. It really devastated real estate values in the mid 1980s and it took years to catch up. Something similar could happen and in high state areas. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and you can buy quite a bit of house with a $500,000 mortgage. But if you're in Southern California or parts of Seattle or New York City, your dollar doesn't go so
1: far. Some would argue it's an equity thing that the low-tax states uh, and lower property value states should not be subsidizing high tax, high property value states, so it's better to equalize the whole thing out. Where, where do you fall on that whole argument?
2: Oh, I think, that, I think they're absolutely right, but I think that you have to look at where we are now in reality. You know, it's, it's, like, the, it's like testing something and saying, yeah, it works in the real world, but does it work in theory? So you're taking a theory that everybody should be treated equally across the states, and you're imposing a change legislatively, and that's going to have real-world impacts on
1: a lot of people. So what would those real-world impacts be? People say that they would people would be moving out of high-tax states. Everybody's going to go to Florida and Texas, for example. In, in fact, do you think that, in fact, would happen if these taxes are equalized well,
2: like this? Florida and Texas. California is the highest state, highest state tax there is and people have been moving out of California for decades. I think there's something like a hundred people a day moving into the Dallas area and a good percentage of them come from California. People move to Florida because the tax climate is better and the climate climate is better than in New York. So again, we talked about before the break, it's a mistake when people do things for tax reasons. We would love to see people move to Texas and Florida because those are the places they want to live, not just because those are the places that have lower taxes.
1: Do you think it's going to happen? Do you think that there would be that the state and local income tax will be wiped out as part of the bill?
2: I would be surprised if it's going to happen, but honestly, and we haven't gotten into this, I don't think this bill is going to pass. I don't think that the Senate with a mere two vote majority and possible loss of one of those two votes next month in the Alabama special election is really going to be able to pull it all together. I know that the Senate is scheduled to vote on the bill the week after Thanksgiving. I'll be surprised if it happens. And even if the Senate bill passes, the Senate and the House have to reconcile their two bills in a conference committee. So we'll see what happens. But it would be surprising to see legislation pass that actually has that great an effect on the
1: state and local tax deduction. And if the whole tax bill falls apart and does not pass, uh, then what happens?
2: Then we are stuck with the same crappy system we've <laughs> been working with since, oh, the mid-1990s when legislators started loading the loading the tax code up uh, again like a Christmas tree after the 1986 Tax Reform Act. You know, it, it really is a shame. I was a legislative assistant on Representative Jack Kemp's staff in 1986 when the original Tax Reform Act passed. Part of the reason I worked on Capitol Hill as a young staffer right out of college is, is because I was energized by Representative Kemp's effort to cut the tax. But since then, it's been one betrayal after another. And every time the tax system gets changed, it gets made more complicated.
1: That seems to be the direction things are going here, yeah. But uh, do you think that would have a big effect on the markets? If Because right now, people are expecting some kind of a tax bill to go through, uh, and that's one of the reasons the stock market's been doing so well. Would that have a negative impact on the markets if it all falls apart?
2: Absolutely. Some form of tax cut is priced into the stock market. So again, we get back to this this theme, this running theme that we've been discussing through this uh, through this discussion, which is making financial decisions for financial reasons and not letting the tax tail wag the financial dog so let's look at the overall economy we've got three percent growth we've got essentially full employment and we have a strong stock market the economy seems to be in pretty good shape despite all of this political noise that's going on the question is can the stock market survive the disappointment of not getting a tax bill if I could tell you the answer to that question, I'd be in a very different line of business and I'd be day trading from
1: some Caribbean tax haven somewhere. <laughs> very good. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ed Lyon. Uh, he is the founder and chief tax strategist at Tax Coach Software, which is owned by Financial Gravity. You can find out more at his website, financialgravity.com. We'll be back after this.
3: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answers Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ed Lyon. He's the Chief Tax Strategist at Tax Coach Software which is owned by Financial Gravity, his website, financialgravity.com. Welcome back to the show, Ed. Good to be here. So assuming for the moment that what you said is correct, that the whole tax plan falls apart and we're stuck with what we've got, let's kind of go into that a little bit. So what are some things that people can do now, the average person, to reduce their taxes legally uh, that they may not be aware of?
2: Well, the first thing that you need to understand is that think of taxes as something that happens on April 15th when you take a big grocery bag full of receipts to your CPA. And in fact, that's a really big and really expensive mistake. Taxes are something that you need to plan for all year round. Now, I've said a couple of times, don't make decisions just for tax reasons. But once you do make a decision... Find the most tax efficient way to do it before you execute it rather than taking some action like selling an appreciated stock or selling a piece of rental property and then just taking that information to your accountant and hoping for the best. So today really is as good a day to be planning your taxes as April 15th. The second thing that's important is to understand how the tax system works, and it's it's hard to grasp seventy thousand pages of law and three million words of regulation and uh, eleven thousand four hundred and sixty-seven tax court decisions. I have no—I I, I just made that last number up, but it's plausible, right? There are too many yeah. tax court deci- tax court decisions. So I look at the tax code as a series. Of red lights and green lights so you've got code section 1a which says here's the tax for married couples filing jointly and it gives you the table of tax brackets code section 1b gives you the tax tables for single individuals then there are other red light provisions code section 1432 I think gives you the self-employment tax you stop and pay tax Code section 1411 gives you the net investment income tax. You stop and pay the tax. So those are the red lights. But very quickly, the code starts putting in green lights. And in fact, there are more green lights than red lights. So code section 101 says that life insurance death benefits are tax-free. Code section 105B says that employer-provided health care benefits are tax-free. Code section 170 says charitable gifts are deductible, within certain limits, but deductible. Code section 179 says that if a business buys equipment and it fits within the section 179 expense deduction, they can deduct it instead of depreciating it. So here's the thing. Most accountants focus on the red lights. And that's important because blowing through the red lights is how you get in trouble but they really don't focus much on the green lights. And if you want to do less, if you want to do more to pay less, you need to focus on the green lights. You need to focus on the opportunities. So Jordan, I'm going to ask you a question because I'm assuming you don't file your own tax returns. But the question is valid for everybody who's listening right now. And that question is, when was the last time your tax guy came to you and said, here's an idea that I
1: think will save you money? In my case, they do, but in most cases, you're right. They're, they're just doing most it after.
2: Cases they don't. In most cases, uh, they don't. 90% of the people listening to this broadcast right now are shaking their heads and saying, nope, nobody comes to me and says, here's an idea that I think will save me you money.
1: So you're saying that there are a lot of green lights available for the average person that they may not be aware of. There are a the lot
2: of green, green lights available, uh, mostly for business owners for real estate investors and for people who are managing taxable investment assets. Those are the three big areas. Unfortunately, if you are, if you and your, uh, you and your spouse are married, you both earn an income from an employer. So you both get a W two and at the end of the year you've got mortgage interest and property tax. There's really not a whole lot of planning you can do, but if you own a business, if you own real estate and if you're managing any taxable investment assets, that's where the real opportunities are. And in fact, owning a business of your own is the best tax shelter that's left in the tax code.
1: Because they're trying to encourage small business to grow because of the, the people that hire the most is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And because businesses contribute more to the people who write the tax code than individuals.
1: Yeah. Now, you're saying tax planning sometimes can be, I guess the word is aggressive, cannot get you into trouble and raise audit red flags. Typically it does not. Some people worry
2: that tax planning is aggressive. It's not. And, An endless series of Supreme Court decisions has established that there is nothing improper in arranging your affairs to pay the least amount of tax. Some people worry that tax planning can raise red flags, and there are some strategies that will raise red flags. The IRS has a category of... Transactions They call them listed transactions, where if you do one of these listed transactions, you need to fill out a special form and attach it to your tax return and guarantee that the IRS is going to come sniffing around you.
1: What are some Most, examples of, of those red flags?
2: Uh, for example, there's a, there's a popular tax minimization strategy called a conservation easement. It involves giving away part of your property for conservation and taking a tax break. So if I own a 300-acre farm at the edge of the city and suburbanization is marching relentlessly towards my farm and the developers are eyeing my farm like uh, like hyenas are, are eyeing a sick gazelle, I can go to a conservation group and I can give away the right to develop my farm and I can say this farm can never be developed, it must always be kept open land. I still get to keep the farm, but I get a big fat tax deduction between the difference for the difference between what I could sell the property for to the developers and what it's worth as a farm. Now, I think most people would agree that that is an appropriate treatment of the farmland because I really am giving away the value of that land. But there is a there's a transaction called the conservation easement partnership, which is a strategy where investors join together in a partnership to donate land perfectly legitimate strategy. But sometimes they structure things to give away a little too much and they'll set it up so that I can put one hundred thousand dollars into the partnership and deduct maybe a million dollars.
1: So that's what gets abusive, you say. You can do it, but you can't do it. Yeah,
2: as, as, as I'm sure somebody on your show has said, bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. You yes. can be a little yeah. piggy, so if you do a, a conservation easement partnership where the charitable deduction is more than 250% of what you contribute, that's a listed transaction. But yeah. the concept itself is perfectly legitimate and still legitimate, even though the IRS may disagree on some of the valuation. There's nothing illegal about that transaction. But Jordan, how how about o- overseas?
1: Up? I mean, that, uh, there were these papers that came out recently about how people are u- wealthy people are using uh, Bermuda and Cayman Islands and all these offshore tax havens to, to avoid millions of dollars in taxes. Mm-hmm. Is that something that the IRS is going to be able to crack down? Because that seems just violently abusive.
2: Violently abusive is right, and, and in most cases, moving offshore is not a tax strategy for Americans. We have one of the f- – our country is one of the few in the world that taxes us on all of our income that we earn, no matter where we earn it in the world. So moving money to a Swiss bank doesn't save you tax dollars unless you don't t- tell the government that there's money in the Swiss bank. That does raise a red flag, and there's a special box you've got to check on your tax return asking you if you are the holder of any foreign accounts or the beneficiary of any foreign trusts. So the primary reason that offshore entities are being attacked in the news today is when people use them for secrecy. Now, one man's secrecy is another man's privacy. If you're the richest guy in town and you don't want everybody in town to know you're the richest guy, you might want to use an anonymous LLC to buy property so that your neighbor's don't all know how much you own. There are legitimate reasons for Americans to move offshore and there are some tax reasons to structure investments offshore, but in most cases, that's not the tax play. But there are some tax planning strategies that actually lower your risk of being audited. So if I run a business and I'm a sole proprietor, which is the basic type of business, no entity set up, and I gross a certain amount of income, if I gross, over $100,000, Schedule C's grossing over $100,000 have the highest rate of audit. That's about a 4% audit rate. If I set up an S corporation to operate my business, the audit rate for S corporations is 4 tenths of 1%. So I can actually cut my risk of being audited by nearly 90% by taking advantage of a strategy that also saves me money.
1: Now, some people are saying that the chance of audit in general is going down. The budgets for the IRS have been cut for many years. That's this whole tax gap they're talking about. Do people have less to fear from the IRS today because there's just not as many people there to enforce all these things? Yes, the
2: people who say that are absolutely right. With the IRS budgets being cut, there's less money for enforcement. That means there's less, there are fewer audits. And the auditors understand that they need to focus their efforts where they're going to get the biggest bang for their buck. It also means there's less money for collections. So if you owe the IRS money, there's less chance that the IRS is actually going to do anything to collect that money from you. And there was one report that came out about a year ago in the Dallas district of the IRS. Typically, if you owe money, you're going to get a letter every so often. You're in, in what's called the automated collection system, and if you owe enough money, they will put a human being on your case, a revenue officer whose job it is to collect from you. In the Dallas district, they didn't put revenue officers on cases
1: unless you owed a million dollars or more. Wow. Wow. What is one of the most expensive tax mistakes that people make?
2: Uh, really, the, the, expense, the most expensive tax mistake I see people make is failing to plan. Is waiting until April 15th and failing to arrange their circumstances, arrange their business, arrange their portfolio, arrange their real estate for the maximum tax advantage upfront. It's really expensive and it's it's really painful when you realize how much money you have wasted. I've seen clients who have wasted literally millions of dollars in taxes they don't have to pay. I've seen six-figure annual tax bills that they didn't have to pay. I had one poor client, after looking at his taxes, uh, I had just worked with a a heart surgeon who told me that uh, the doctor's fee on a heart transplant is $100,000. That same week, saw a client who had wasted $100,000 in taxes that he didn't need to pay simply because of the way his had his business was organized, and I asked him, "Did you realize you just paid for a heart transplant for somebody on medic on Medicare?" <laughs> he was devastated. That
1: made, that made him feel better, I guess. Yes.
2: Uh, I, I think he needed a heart transplant after I had that conversation <laughs> with him.
1: Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ed Lyon. He's the chief tax strategist at Tax Coach Software. Uh, which is owned by Financial Gravity. You can find out more at his website, financialgravity.com. We'll be back after this.
3: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to the Money Answers Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ed Lyon. He's the chief tax strategist at Tax Coach Software, which is owned by Financial Gravity, their website, financialgravity.com.
2: Welcome back to the show, Ed. This is a terrific call. I'm having a great time here.
1: Great. Well, I think the uh, listeners will enjoy it as well. And I want to go to the investment side of things. So most financial advisors say putting money into tax-deferred savings vehicles like 401Ks, traditional IRAs is good, particularly if you make too much, you can't do a Roth IRA. Is that good advice to put money into tax-deferred accounts? Uh,
2: well, for starters, I want you to find the person who can define too much money for me. I have yet to meet a client who says, yeah, I've got too much money. The uh, This is this is a tough debate, and, and it really isn't an easy answer, but what I want people to do, what I think people need to do is is look at the question and, and understand what the question is. So the concept here is, is, uh, is sound. The theory is if you are in your prime working years, you're probably earning your highest income that you'll earn during your life, and you're probably in the highest tax bracket you'll be. So it makes sense to avoid tax on money now, put it to work for you, get some tax-deferred earnings for a couple of decades, and then when you're retired and you're pulling the money out, you'll be in a lower tax bracket. But that isn't always true, and it's true a lot less often than most people think. For starters, we have no idea what the tax rate is going to be when you retire. If you're 35 years old, we could get hit by a comet by then. I'm 53 years old. I have no idea what the tax bracket's going to be when I retire. In fact, with this bill working its way through Congress, we don't know what the tax bra- tax rates are going to be in, in 40 days. They could change. So yeah. do you really feel comfortable making these sorts of, of long-range decisions simply based on what everybody says? The other downside of the tax-deferred accounts is Two, uh, two, two downsides, actually. First is, once you, you reach a certain age, 70 and a half, you must start taking taxable distributions out of your account, whether you want them or not. And second, everything that comes out of those tax-deferred accounts is taxed as ordinary income. Whereas if you had invested the money in the same vehicle in a taxable account, you might get a break. So if I'm investing for retirement and I wanna put money into a growth stock that doesn't pay a dividend, I don't have to pay, if I I buy that stock just in a regular taxable brokerage account, I'm not gonna get any taxable dividend checks and I don't have to sell that stock. I don't have to pay tax on the gains until I choose. And even when I do, I'm gonna get a a lower long-term capital gains rate And if I die holding the stock, my heirs will get a stepped-up basis. So if I buy it at $20 a share and it's worth $100 when I die, my heirs can sell it at $100 and they're going to pay no tax. With that same stock in an IRA, now I'm going to have to start taking minimum required distributions based on its value when I'm 70 and a half. And whenever I take it out, I'm going to pay ordinary income tax rates. So the conventional wisdom is often quite wrong, and it can be really expensive having your money in the wrong kind of retirement account. For a lot of people, particularly younger people, it makes more sense to have their money in a, in a Roth account. Just go ahead and take the small tax hit now and avoid tax on the larger amount down the road. It's, it's like deciding whether you want to pay tax on the seed or the harvest.
1: But a lot of people earn too much and are not eligible for Roth. So are there other ways of growing your money tax-free if you're not eligible for a Roth because you make too much?
2: Yes, absolutely. There are a lot of different backdoor Roth alternatives. In some cases, it depends on your employer retirement plan cooperating. But if you are in a 401k at work, you may have the option to take Roth treatment for your 401k deferrals. You can put money into a non-deductible regular IRA and then you can immediately roll it into a Roth IRA. You know, we talk about backdoor Roth IRAs. Some of these backdoors are really attractive sliding glass doors on the patio, and it's it's more attractive to come in the back way than it is to go through the front door.
1: Some- How about insurance is another one. People often talk about insurance as a way of growing money tax-free. Is that an yeah, efficient tax yeah. s- system?
2: From a tax perspective, permanent life insurance is essentially a private Roth IRA, with no annual limits on how much you can contribute and uh, with any Roth IRA, no requirement that you take minimum distributions at, at any particular age. Now, insurance is insurance, so it may or may not make sense to buy life insurance depending on how much insurance coverage you need and on how healthy you are. You have to be insurable to make that strategy work. but particularly for somebody who's in the middle of their career say in their 40s or 50s and in good health it may be that uh, that life insurance is a more attractive savings vehicle once they've maximized any employer match in their company's retirement plan so a lot a lot of different moving pieces there but you 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 can't just accept the conventional wisdom that you want to stuff as much as you can into a tax deferred
1: plan is there such a thing as a perfect investment at least from a tax perspective.
2: The perfect investment would give you a deduction when it goes into the investment. There would be no tax on the growth, and it would be tax-free coming out. So there'd be no tax on the seed, the growth, and the harvest. There is not such a thing. But the closer you get to perfect, the better. So the Roth IRA doesn't give you a deduction on the seed, but it gives you a It gives you a tax break on the growth and on the harvest versus a traditional 401k, which does give you a break on the seed and does give you a break on the growth, but doesn't give you a break on the harvest. So no perfect investment. It's just a matter of planning to see which is best for you. And that's where that proactive planning comes in. It's not enough to just have a tax advisor who records your W-2 and says, okay, I see that you put $12,000 into your retirement plan. You want a tax advisor who does more than that. You want a tax advisor who can help you decide, is this really the most tax efficient way to be investing for
1: retirement? Are there some tax shelters, other than what we've just talked about as far as insurance and uh, tax deferred accounts, tax shelters for investors to take advantage of? I mean, tax shelters kind of have this image from the 80s of three-to-one, four-to-one write-offs and all that, that's pretty much gone. But there's some other things still left today that are legitimate tax shelters.
2: Real estate is probably the most tax-sheltered investment today, and that's because you get to take real deductions for paper losses, and that's the depreciation. So commercial real estate depreciates over 39 years. If you're a partner in a partnership that buys a $3.9 million warehouse, they're going to depreciate $100,000 a year. That's going to come off of the taxable income, but the partnership isn't actually paying $100,000 in cash expenses. Now, under the current rules, you're probably borrowing money to buy that $3.9 million warehouse. You are getting to deduct the interest that you pay to buy the warehouse, but you're also getting the non-cash benefit of the depreciation deduction. So real estate, as as maligned as it's sometimes in, is probably that best tax shelter. But there are limits on it. And if your income is above a hundred if your adjusted gross income is above one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, whether you're married or, or single, you lose the ability to deduct losses against ordinary income. So the goal for a lot of people who buy real estate partnerships is to earn an income. They want a cash flow, but they don't want to pay tax on that cash flow. That's a a very doable proposition. But you're right, the 1980s style tax shelters, the cattle breeding and cattle feeding operations and the master disc recordings, whatever the hell those are, uh, are not available anymore. That's all
1: gone. In about two minutes we have left, just kind of summarize what difference it'll make if people follow your advice to do tax planning. As opposed to kind of being the reactionary way of normally doing it, as you would describe?
2: Well, if they do it my way, they're going to pay less tax. And they're going to make smarter decisions because, as part of this process, they're going to look at the wisdom of the financial decision first and then they're going to look at the most tax efficient way to do it. They're not going to make the mistake of doing things just for tax reasons, even if it's not necessarily the right financial decision. So somebody who does smart tax planning is going to be smarter about their money in general, and they're going to take advantage of legitimate strategies to pay less. Ultimately, your success in investing, it comes down to three factors. How much you put in, how much you were how what rate of return you get and how much time you have to invest. Tax planning will help you earn a greater rate of return. That means either you can afford to put less money in or you don't have to wait as long for your investment to grow where you need it to go.
1: Well thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Ed Lyon. Uh, he is the chief tax strategist at Tax Coach Software, which is owned by Financial Gravity. You can find out more at his website, financialgravity.com. Thanks so much for being a very great guest on The Money Answer Show, Ed. Thanks, Jordan. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.
0: Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.